Mark My Words shares Mark Homer's contrarian views on investing, business, finance, economics, and all things money. Mark interviews the world's most successful business, finance, and money experts, as well as imparting his knowledge in a factual, direct, and no-nonsense manner. Welcome to Mark My Words, and here is your host, Mark Homer. Hello, and welcome to Mark My Words. I've got David Lane here with me. Um, I hope I've got Morning, your Mark. surname Hello. correct there, there David, who um, actually I, I met at uh, his, his daughter Vicky's wedding. David did a, a brilliant speech at the wedding, talked about his sort of history in, in one of the biggest construction companies in the country. And I was quite inspired by some of the things that he was talking about. In a much, much smaller way, it mirrored some of the experiences that, that we'd had in starting our business and sort of going into the construction game and, the, and specifically the property investment game. So, David, welcome to the podcast. Um, it, it's great to, great good, to see Good you. to be a part of the scene here this morning with you, Mark. Thank you. So, David, you're, you were a member of a, a huge construction dynasty, which started in 1848. Could you tell me a little bit more about that and the types of projects that, that the company was involved with? Well, very interesting, because last weekend we'd uh, had to go up to Edinburgh for a particular friend's functions up there. And on the way, we'd been asked to call in at Gretna, just off Gretna Green, which was having its 100th anniversary. And this was a particular church project. But the reason the church and the town had grown was because grandfather and his father had been responsible for building the town there. And this was being set up as one of the the main munitions factories during the the First World War. It was a very, very big business. Uh, They they built all of the the sheds. There were miles of factories there. They they were obviously sort of quite low-key, all very sort of separate buildings in case one went up. 50,000 workers had to be accommodated, so you built a a town effectively for them. So it, it was one of the points of major growth for the company. And it, and it sort of put me in mind of just how the whole thing had been started up. So Sir John, my grandfather's father, he'd had an enormous growth on the back of the Franco-Prussian War, so about 40 years earlier. And that meant they had to sort of make lots of wool. So they built loads of woolen mills. And he was in a position to construct all of those. And so that, that was the birthplace of the, the, the real money in the business. Having said that, he immediately found, well, wars end, business ends, and he'd got major capability and very little work. So he then had to husband his resources for many years. And then as the sort of, then the First World War came along, that was the ne- next sort of big boom. And it wasn't that they were, shall we say, profiteering from that situation. It was, you know, work that had to be done. They were doing it very effectively. And so that that, uh, meant that Langs took off. And it was only later that from there they brought the business down nearer Carlisle and then subsequently down to Mill Hill in North London. And that really was where the consolidation took place and the major growth again. And that was just before the Second World War. During the sort of Second World War itself, we were responsible for a lot of the the runways across the country, the Mulberry Harbours, so serious concrete work. So uh, runways, uh, what sort of major infrastructure, what airports? Yeah, airports. Um, and, so yep. which airports w- would you have been involved So, for instance, uh, it, you can look at a big one um, down in Manston, which uh, down, down near Ramsgate in Kent. Mm. That was uh, handling all these sort of big American bombers going over into Germany from there. The East Anglian ones, yeah, most of those. That led to a sort of big expertise in, in concrete. Mm. Um, and so uh, abroad, we did things like Kariba Dams, over in East Africa, and other sort of really large projects that then sort of progressed through for the M1, shall we say, uh, the big so, project. So you built the M1, yep. pretty much. Yep. Yeah, yeah, that's um, so, rather impressive. Well, yeah. that, that was very convenient yeah. because I just started courting my wife up in Leicester. <laughs> so it uh, it meant that we could, didn't have to go up on the A5 and the A6 anymore. We could sort yeah. of get up there a lot quicker. Mm. So that was good. Very, very impressive. Um, I understand you're involved in the the Sizewell nuclear power station. Yeah, with sort of Sizewell, so we'd, with the, and then so the power station down in Bristol, East Anglia, all, all of the sort of nuclear plants were, you know, sort of projects which we love doing. That concrete, then, yeah, concrete yeah. again. Low bridges, in, in yeah, casing, of course, you know, second seven bridges and yeah. things like that. You know, they they were all part of what what we were doing. Yeah. 
and uh, and the Millennium Dome. I mean, these are huge, huge projects. Aren't yeah, they? it wasn't such a bad building after all that Millennium Dome. It got got a sort of enormous sort of bad press, but in real terms, it's one of the best venues in London now. Do you know what? I love going to as the O2 now and, mm-hmm. and, and watching acts there. It's um, it's, it's, it's a brilliant thing. So um, for me, sort of growing up with all of that going on was you know, it was really very exciting indeed. You know, we were seeing. England, Britain, however you want to call it, all the patriotic bits, but um, the real growth and, and energy that was coming through at that time to be part of that, fantastic. Yeah, wow, wow. And um, I, I understand also you're involved with major sort of rail projects as well. Yeah, the sort of construction company generated quite a lot of cash. There, there was a sort of a, a time, and it's a good few years back, where building was truly profitable. Mm. And the first thing you, you did was actually your upfront payments came in upfront. So you got a good down payment as the work progressed and you were using your client's money. That doesn't happen anymore. Mm. Um, you know, you're using your own money or the bank's money. So things get pretty serious now. And uh, grandfather and subsequently father, they decided when there was a threat from uh, Wilson and Labour government that they would hive off all of the property assets. They were pretty ordinary. You know, sort of, we look at progressive properties here. Uh, you would, you wouldn't have wanted most of these things. They were sort of North London industrial estates well, and things sure. like that. <laughs> and and anyhow, we took it out yeah. of the reach of government. So we yeah. said, if they want to nationalise building companies, okay, you can do that, but we'll keep the what we call the profit that we've made tucked in the bank and uh, look after that ourselves. And that then led to a culture where we started to invest in more properties and in sort of laying investments which then subsequently did Chiltern Rail. And you know, we held the infrastructure projects in the motorways, hospitals. Uh, we went abroad to Australia. We went to Spanish motorway networks. And uh, you know, we, we had major, major holdings. And they, that proved to be very, very successful business. That's very interesting. So I, I suppose within that business, you were mainly dealing with government or, or government subsidiaries or agencies or, or whatever they were the sort of main client, is that they were, right? They, they certainly were. Yeah. Either direct government or their agencies, be it the yeah. police, the hospitals and that sort of thing. So, yeah. 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 And um, I, I suppose, I mean, it's not something that, you know, I'm always obtaining planning consents here, so, you know, and, and there are various other things that we would get government to approve. But other than that, they're not our customer. We're very much a consumer-focused mm-hmm. business. Yeah, you're lucky you um, get your consents. Everybody else seems to have trouble. Well, uh, I've got a, ma- a major one for us, just hanging in the balance at the moment, which I've been working on for about 14 months, the Marks and Spencers building mm-hmm. in, in, in the town centre here, about, about 80,000 square foot. And um, I think we're almost there, but there's, there's always just another report or just another thing which, which they want. Which, um, But I imagine on the scale that we're talking about here, there were sort of different challenges. Certainly, you know, I presume, I mean, would you have had a lot of competition for those kind of contracts back then? Were, were the big, I mean, you, know, you, you were both in competition yeah. and, and forming sort of partnerships as well. So, yeah. you know, were we working with sort of the wimpies of this world yeah, at the right time? You did. Yeah. Um, and Taywoods and things like that. Or you got chunks of a project and then sort of another company would take you know another 20 mile stretch of a motorway so you had to interact with each other to to make sure you got the overall project completed in time yeah but i i presume that you were the margins were much bigger than in some way you know on on some projects i'm I'm sure it depends what what type of business you were involved with but I suppose finance was maybe more difficult to come by. Um, when you want it, finance is never easy. Yeah. Um, and when you've got a lot of finance, the projects aren't around. <laughs> <laughs> so that it's just one of those sort well, of strange that dilemmas. It, that, Absolutely. That's how it works now. I mean, yeah. I remember in the credit crunch sort of 10 years ago, I, for me, that that was just, that was my favourite time. Everyone, you know, business partner, a lot of other people just say, oh, you, you know, you you love all the doom and gloom, but it was just when all the deals were around Mm-mm. and all I had to do to fix the main issue was finding the money. Well, I could always do that because if I rang enough people and sort of spoke to enough banks and dug deep enough here, mm. um, I could always get the money. Um, the, the deals were a lot easier, whereas the reality today is that it's 
totally flipped on its head. Well, now money's too easy. It's way too easy. Yeah. Um, and the cost you know, in terms of there. development finance. Yeah. And to actually, you know, the risk element, you know, it, it relative to the reward, you know, what sort of returns are we looking for now in order, mm. because the money's so cheap, everybody accepts these ridiculously low margins, really. And, you know, when will it reverse? When could it happen? And it's, it's always one of these situations, isn't it? At the end of the day, timing is always the first and most important thing in the business. Then patience is also another one. Mm. How's your patience level? <laughs> well, uh, I, I've learned over the years to just sit and do nothing when um, things, right. things look, look a little bit crazy. Mm -mm. Or just be very, very discerning in terms of the deals that, you know, I won't stop looking at deals and I won't stop no. trying to do deals, but I'll just bid very low on them. Uh, and I'll end up not getting very much for a long period of time because I just feel like, things aren't right and you know if, if we're going to be making a sort of 20 30 year decision mm. i have to ask myself will this look good in you know over that period of time and where will it leave us in sort of five or ten years once the things yes. all, all developed out and, and ready to roll we're carrying the asset scenario sort of forward from where you know we, we left it certainly the family's property company which is called eskmuir we certainly believe in that you know we, we set parameters and margins which we need to retain in our property portfolios and if we can't get that you don't bid it but you know what we found is that because clients and agents know we can perform and do perform then deals that had been on the table might, might have gone elsewhere when they fall through then they come back to us and you know we can we can then complete and retain them there's definitely a, a big a very very big point there in making sure your reputation is protected and agents you know over a period of time know who performs and and who just sort of agrees Absolutely. to do deals and then a week yeah. or two later or even the day before exchange they pull out yeah they know um, we're tough we know they know we we have certain sort of quite strong parameters yeah but that eventually and ultimately we would do the deal and if we say we will we will and you've got the money yes. um, which which is a, a big differentiator i know just this week i was talking to an agent about a couple of other people in our local town here that I'm bidding against quite often. If I'm trying to buy a commercial building and I'm converting it into apartments or whatever, it's the same yeah. individual. I hear there's no mafia in Peterborough yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to property. <laughs> and um, yeah, I, um, I, I, I'd that's in the widest sense of the yeah, word, not course, the actual. Course, well, I was in Italy actually a couple yeah. of weeks ago, and yeah. uh, some quite interesting things on the coast there. But I know. You know, certainly when I'd got into this game of, of buying commercial, buying the bigger buildings, I used to look at these guys because they had serious portfolios already and bought a lot. And they used to think, God, I'm never, I'm never going to get anything because mm. they're always there and they're, you know, the agents are just going to give the cheap deals to them. And over a period of time, you realise that actually they've wound a few agents up and a few agents don't actually like some of them. A lot of the no, time it's personalities no. or because they've pulled out of a deal or something went wrong or whatever. And I was only reminded of it this last week when an agent said to me, um, you know, who, who has sold me a couple of deals recently, he said to me, I sold them to you and, and not this other guy because he's pulled out on me a couple of times before. Mm -mm. Um, and that was someone I had sort of thought, well, you know, they, they sort of buy a hell of a lot of stuff and, I'm, uh, you know, I'm always going to be sort of second in the queue uh, behind them. So, so your reputation builds the relationship? Very much so. And, uh, and I, I, you know, we... Certainly, you may may or may not have seen David over over the years. We probably we bought I don't know four or five six hundred individual terraced houses mm -hmm. through residential agents, which are a much different beast. And it was the same thing, but maybe sort of delivered in a slightly different fashion. There's a, a different context there when you're dealing with sort of residential agents and and the type of people involved, but. If you're buying consistently and you're completing and, you know, even if you're paying less, that, that's the person the agent wants to deal with because Absolutely. they're going to get the commission. Yeah. It's a big thing. Okay, so you touched on the fact that you hived off quite a few of the assets, the investment assets, because of a, an, an impending threat from, from a Labour government. Did that crystallise? Did they nationalise things? No, it was, it was all sort of talk as it turned out yeah. then. So, but... Going that back then through the sort of the timing of cycles, for instance, I, I sort of went through college and trained as an architect with a view to joining the firm, mm. um, which had a an overall design department of architects, engineers, QSs of something like sort of 400 people. 
by the time I'd left college, which was in the sort of the 70s, uh, very early, we were in depth of recession. Mm. I think there were then 60 in that department. So you've gone so from 400 it, to 60. Yep. Yeah. And so, the, and, and that was so happening across the construction industries as a whole, um, major recessions, um, and our own schemes were all being sort of cut back to the bone. So to be part of uh, the design department within Langs as a construction business, as a future, and as a place to perhaps climb up and be on the board and that type of thing, it was not a healthy place to be. There was no prospect. So it was at that time I went into private architecture and uh, went to work for somebody called Basil Spence. And then we formed our own private practice after that as well. So, so what were you involved with when you, you formed your, your own private practice? You moved away from, from Lanes. What did you focus on in terms of your... Your, you know, the type of buildings you were, you were designing? So there was a good general range of industrials. Um, we sort of first main office block I did was at Gantz Hill uh, down on the arterial road going through to Essex. And that was also the first experience of a, a really, really difficult client. And um, we, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think some of our fellow professionals worked with them for f- years because yeah. they just couldn't break their contracts. Right. Um, fortunately, the small print of our contract mm. meant that after a couple of years of, we, we did very well out of them for the yeah. first two years. It was lovely. And uh, after that, we realized, no, this is a pit. Mm. Um, and they were there to really squeeze all their professionals, all mm. of their bricklayers yeah. and everybody else. Yeah. They, they, they were an art in themselves. Mm but it wasn't a good place to be. So we, we broke away from that. But we, we did a lot of housing, we did a lot of restoration works on big situations. I did uh, the interiors of Lords, and some major work over in Switzerland, and a lot of speculative projects, because you know you, you enjoy doing those because mm. they're, they're great to design, and the ones that come off, well, they're, they're very good, and the ones that don't come off, well, you don't really mind because yeah. you're, you're enjoying yourself doing all the design work. Yeah, yeah. Um, and through that, I uh, was then asked to join another big practice, which is called GHM, who had a, another well-known firm called Rock Townsend as part of theirs. And they had about 90 qualified architects. Um, so I was a partner there, and they wanted me to help them sort out a friend's business, which was called Country Metropolitan. And that was a fledgling housing developer um, based down a Harefield in Middlesex. And I went in to sort of chair the board and clean out the board, uh, resolve problems there, but also more importantly to, uh, to try and soothe some shareholder problems that were going on behind the scenes. And fortunately we did that as well. And that grew to a very, very successful business. And we were buying lots of brown land, converting it, developing it, uh, doing some quite good quality housing. It was always aspirational, so it was at a price, but people said, oh, this is really good. You know, so you gave them the cornices, the trims, the decent yeah. and mongery. Yeah. Um, the quid pro quo was that it was very slightly smaller in space than some of the others, but you didn't notice that. We're doing some that. similar stuff at the moment, yeah. yeah. But you, people you like this, it. Yeah, you increase the density, yeah. take the... the um, yeah, the size away, but but you increase the spec. Yeah. I mean, I mean, our modern version would be, you know, you give them stone worktops, you give them engineered wood flooring. It feels really good. Yeah, but they don't get necessarily the space, and you, you work like hell on the design mm-hmm. to make sure that you've utilised the space to its max, and then they're, they're not so bothered. No. Is that... Is, Absolutely. That sort so, of, you know, your margin is, is yeah. improved. Yeah. Your sales go up, yeah. um, and the client and the word of mouth, and it, it's a product that people really want. Mm. Um, so we were converting old American Air Force bases and mental hospitals and things like that. So that was one range. And then there was the sort of the, the brownfield housing, which is, you know, really the, the model we were just talking about. Yeah. Um, so so these were sort of brownfield sites. You'd go in, demolish. Clean. The developer would yeah. clean them up, get rid of the contamination, and, and then they'd be new yeah. builds. Yeah. yeah. And mo- mostly yeah. They, weren't, they weren't actually that contaminated. They were just yeah. in bits of a town which was regarded as maybe not absolute prime. Yeah. Um, but you could certainly, by sort of making the house look that bit better, mm. rather than just the overall box, yeah. uh, then, then people, oh, we like that. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so that, you know, we had those all over the country from sort of down in the southwest, up through East Anglia and up to Scotland. And then by the time the company eventually itself got taken over, we'd 
building out places like Quarter Mile in Edinburgh, which was very major sort of resi and commercial centres. You know, it was top stuff. So they were within the sort of the top ten of the, the housing developers across the country. Um, and then a firm called Gladedale bought them, and that coincided. I uh, then had a major car crash two years after that. So you know, life changed a bit from that time on. But I was covering a lot of other things I was enjoying as well. So, yeah. yeah. Sort of golf courses up at King's Barns <laughs> or down in Spain, <laughs> which we were developing. Yeah. yeah. They all had enormous potential. Did yeah. I did I end up with a pot at the end of the rainbow? No, we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> you had a lot you know, of fun along the way. Yeah, you do. Yeah. You do. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, so just back to you picking up on a thread that we sort of started earlier on. I just feel this is quite current. You were talking about sort of nationalisation and a, a possible, in, I don't know if they did get into power, I'm, I'm too young, but, you know, a Labour government. Clearly we've got Jeremy Corbyn on the horizon. He's sitting there, isn't he? Uh, yeah. He's sitting there. Um, he is sort of 70. Um, I, I, I don't know how, how much energy he's going to have in 2022, if that mm-hmm. is the next election. But um, lots of people are worried. Lots of our community is worried. People see what he's talking about. In terms of yeah, he's he's, he's sort of banging the nationalisation drum on I don't know rail and sort of utilities and things like that. Maybe he's not talking about it in terms of private companies yet, but he is talking about other uh, loads of other things like I don't know giving tenants more rights and 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 sort of increasing corporation and other taxes quite significantly and a, and a possible sort of wealth tax. How big a risk do you um, see this as? to private enterprise. Do you think a lot of it is just talk or, or do you think a lot of this will crystallise? Well, the problem is that it's so easy to to say what people or a certain proportion of the electorate would like to hear, mm. you know, and it's so easy to knock the banks, okay, fine. So easy to knock sort of private business because yeah. they make profits, don't they? And it needs to be distributed around and I suppose your basic commodity is land who should actually take the profit out of land if it is given development value and that sort of thing. So, and I sympathise with that to a certain extent because, you know, it's a massive increase in, shall we say, farmland that's sort of been held and then goes to development. You know, do we take too much out of that as single profit? But at the same time, you cannot disincentivize people in making some profitability because if you haven't got some profits, you won't do the jobs and you can't dictate to them. The government hasn't got actually money without printing enormous amounts of it. So then the moment you get into labour, within a period of time, you're into your cycles of inflation and everything else. And one half of the probably sort of community would love interest rates to go up. They'd sort of make a bit of money on their savings. The cost to the day-to-day borrower, of course, is going to be enormous. And because of the amount of personal debt that's sort of tied up in the marketplace, yeah, that's very dangerous indeed. And so that coming through the economy... Uh, could cause a major burst. Government itself wants inflation because it's the only way they can get rid of the debt. Mm. Uh, so it's bizarre that, isn't it? You, you, you need it to get, get <laughs> rid of debt. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but, well, that's what happens, isn't it? I yes. mean, in, inflation does it, erodes debt. And that's, um, but, you know, then tax yeah. is, is an issue. You know, what is a fair rate of tax? Well, mm-hmm. if you're making a lot of profit, then a fair rate of tax is, is okay to pay. I don't think anyone's got a, a problem with that. But the moment it gets to a, a level which disincentivizes people to, to get out and do things. Well, it's not too many years before either businesses decide to go elsewhere or the market just deteriorates. And so you end, you end up with stag- stagnation. And that's not very good for anybody. I suppose that some of this stuff may happen. And uh, I, I, who knows whether Corbyn will get into power. But, um, you know, if it's not him, maybe it's somebody else. But He's probably going to be what what are called the front that might get them into power, and then who, who would take over? Yeah, pretty short yeah. sort of time afterwards. Yeah, maybe there'll be a little bit more sort of uh, maybe more even keeled thinking that that comes along sort of later, and and, and something that's it could workable. be much later because yeah. of the, you know, the threat at the moment is that what what's coming is going to be quite socialist minded, isn't it? It's going to, it is going to be hardcore, and that's the way we're heading. And how long would it then be before that sort of stabilises and we get a more normal Labour party? So, yeah, the, the, the future's very mixed, isn't it? And then we've got 
combination of Brexit and Trump and everything else going on in the world. And, you know, where do we want to be, you know, as a country? We say we want to come out of Europe, but then we're having a trade war with America, who's going to be one of our bigger partners. Um, That is bizarre, isn't it? But, I mean, is that really... Has that got legs? I mean, Trump says one one thing one day, and then next week he's sort of doing deals back on again with yeah, Kim. The, I just think it's part of his sort of the rhetoric, way he does isn't it? it? It's the yes. way he does it. He he winds everyone up, and then yeah, let's all be friends again. And mm-hmm. um, that's what does he call it? The art of the deal. Yes, the way the way he does deals. Yeah, um, no, I think I think yeah. we're quite good at killing off our own economy, really, aren't we? I think that it doesn't matter which side you you were in the Brexit debate. Yeah. Um, there is no doubt that a lot of the city is moving to Frankfurt. There's a lot of businesses moving to Ireland um, and we'll be losing our position both in Europe and the world. feels that way. Yeah. Uh, it feels like we're cutting our nose off to spite our face. Yes. Uh, yeah. Which I can't get my head around at all. Uh, so the first thing is to say, well, you don't need to look for deals abroad to start off with. Let's, let's make sure you've got what can be done in the mm. UK. Yeah. And, you know, in, in our line of business, be it sort of design or... Uh, development or properties or building there are plenty of opportunities still out there mm. so we you know i think we can drive for those it'd be it, it'd just be great if we could um sort of generate enough business to get gdp growth from sort of low ones to sort of low twos like the rest of europe and and america get rid of some of this uncertainty and as you say focus on what we're we're, we're great at certainly in the in the property sector whether it's Sort of developing new buildings, you know, bringing new trades on, and mm-hmm. and, and developing new industries. Are you um, finding it difficult to find trades to come and build what you want to develop? To, that that is the biggest problem at the moment. Um, so, you know, sort of six, seven, eight years ago, that was one of the easy parts. Yeah. Um, I, I see it a bit like a, a slide rule. Just recession and just after recession, we'd got sort of bank finance very difficult to obtain. Prices relatively low, gr- loads of deals. You know that was, the slide rule was low on that. Rents and yields were great, mm-hmm. and then trades were very easy to find. And, yeah, so and you could max were, out in that. They were you? they were compliant, and um, you know you sort of you know you give them a job. This is the price, you know, and and it, it, largely it got done. These days now, clearly there's a lot more building going on. A lot of those trades have gone back into the industries, you know, other industries that you know hoovered them up during the time of the recession. Mm-hmm. So there aren't as many as there were in 07. I haven't got the statistics, but I'm sure it's the case because a lot of them left the industry. So obviously you're bringing new ones through now. So there are less of them. Obviously we got a lot from Poland and, and the sort of Eastern Bloc. Lots of those are going home now. Yeah. Their currency is not as weak as ours. So clearly when they get paid here, they're not able to get a great rate when, they, when they're sending No, they're not home. getting an uplift on it. They're not. And their economy is doing very, very well. And lots of those Eastern European economies. So lots of those guys are going home. And, and of course, they, they feel the negative winds of Brexit mm-hmm. and, and don't feel that welcome. So labour and trades are the biggest challenge at the moment, to the extent that the, some of the contractors we're using is starting to bring Bulgarians and Romanians in. But of course, there's a massive difference in the, the yeah, sort well, of the quality. work ethic yeah, and, and quality, quality is very different. It's very different. I mean, you... You know, lots of people would assume that sort of, you know, Polish trades, maybe that's, I don't know, similar to the rest of Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. But the difference between a, a Polish joiner and a Bulgarian joiner is massive. You've got uh, somebody coming straight off the farm yeah. in Bulgaria, whereas yeah. the Pole was a genuine joiner yeah. carpenter. And their standards are often higher than they are yeah. here. You know, Poles and Czechs yeah. were the, the mainstay of the workforce straight after the wars and things mm. like that. A lot of their families stayed on, they had relations there. But when it comes to joinery, they were they were the guys. Yeah. You know, you'd really want them. And you realise that. Um, mm. I, I've only learnt that, you know, in the last five years because we've been using them all. So labour um, first, then you've got materials, yeah. you yeah. know, similarly. You yeah. know, how many basic core materials do we make in the UK now? Well, clearly not that many because in the last three, four years, I'd say we've probably had 15, 20% cost price inflation mm-hmm. in those materials. And a lot of that has come in the last couple of years. And I'm sure that's because of sterling depreciation because we're bringing all the those materials in yeah. uh, and we're having to pay more for them because the yeah. currency is devalued. Yeah, you know, within the family, we used to manufacture something called Litag, which was 
a sort of a, a pumice aggregate. We'd, um, we were thermalite blocks and things like that. Well, all of those businesses now are centralised, mostly European-owned. Hanson, where do they get all their bricks from nowadays? Well, it would be Belgium yeah. or France or one of those other countries, so they're importing from there. And, you know, there has to be a cost implication of that. Where do your windows come in from? Most of the good ones are coming in from Germany now. You know, so the Pilkingtons of this world are not doing as much sort of core business here as they used to do. We're really causing for the future sort of a fair dose of inflation in all these areas. Yeah, and I don't think the effect of that has been fully felt yet. Mm. Um, clearly, it takes, you know, as, as you get sort of currency depreciation, there's an initial spike in the price, but then there's a sort of long tail to mm. it um, that, that feeds through over a period of time. And I don't think we're completely done with that. No, because of European recession, mm. world recessions, you know, we've done very well. Everything has been held at a very low price base. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but but now that's all filtering oh, through. Oh, it's definitely you know. changing. Yeah. And oh, how much are you the... paying for your fill-up of the car <laughs> this last two weeks? Well, that's, what are we on now? 135, something yeah. like yeah. that. And yeah, I mean, there's... That's certainly, I suppose that's what Saudi Arabia and that'll be the Middle East when it, but of course it's sterling as well. Yes, because, our, our weakness and, yeah, the, and the, the, and the strength, strength. strength of the commodity. Yeah, yeah. So we touched a little bit earlier on cycles and mm. timing, which are clearly very, very important. Where do you think we are at the moment in the cycle? I don't, I don't know when you would say this cycle started, but, you know, I, I think we sort of, the recession seemed to be coming to an end maybe 2010 and we probably came out of recession probably to well the economy started growing properly maybe in 2013 Mm -mm. where do you see we are in in the cycle now you'd have to say that you know still fairly golden environment isn't it because and mainly due to the sort of the banking and the the rates of interest that who wouldn't want to go and buy something now and you might as well get it and if you can get a good fix on that interest rate for a long time, then absolutely ideal. And then if there's some inflation in the future, well, you're banked at the low rate and things look good. So I think that short term, you'd have to say that it's great. Um, Obviously, land prices have gone up enormously over the last five, six years. We live on the edge of Corby or very close to it. And, you know, what you could buy for, you know, 100,000 an acre 10 years ago because people were in trouble or whatever, you know, you, it, was, it was a great time. Now, those are sort of nudging to the million an acre. Well, that's made a big difference, but you can still make a profit providing you can let the beast at the end of the day as well. So finding what the market will want rather than maybe what you think it wants today is going to be very important. If you're in commercial, is the shed the safe bet? You wouldn't necessarily want to do too much retail currently. Um, <laughs> but, but maybe there as, a, as a family, I think we've got yeah. a um, one out of town site up, up in Norwich and that's fine. It's trading well at the moment and the fallback is, well, if it doesn't, it's a very good resi site anyhow. Well, that, that, that was what I was going to, is, is maybe the opportunity in, in taking the retail mm-hmm. and then converting it. Yeah into residential you've got to have the fullback positions and so i think the in in town you'd have to say the opportunities are perhaps because prices are beginning to come down because of lack of demand for that retail space mm. what are the alternative uses and how can you change town centers or, or village centers so that they become places that are still going to be vibrant no one's quite cracked that yet yeah but, uh, so i you know if we're if we were looking at when the next recession is going to be? I mean, this is the question I the, the, the question that I get continuously. We've got um, a Brexit trigger, yeah, and we've got a Corbyn trigger, yeah, and they they could both be pulled at fairly short notice, <laughs> couldn't they? Yeah, and uh, yeah. so we're, we're intent on suicide. I think so. Yeah. A bit of Russian roulette going on, and so you could well two years is it in all respects, isn't it? So yeah. being careful making sure your liquidity is strong to that time. You know, you're not, yeah. not up, your, up to your sort of borrowing limits or anything yeah. like that in that time. Yeah. So so we get we get through the sort of Brexit, we get through the Corbyn stuff, and then um, as long as there's nothing else too great on the horizon, then perhaps... The, 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 it's a couple of years of absorbing whatever yeah. that's made or created, both Brexit and a Labour government coming in, sorting themselves out. I think we know what the new set of rules is yeah. and, and how to trade, but not being too gung-ho 
from two years on for four years on, probably. Yeah, yeah. So housing's fine. You yeah, know, you've got to have lots of housing. Because and providing people have got the money, then they'll want to buy it or they want the, to rent it or whatever. So yeah. there's lack of supply. So yeah. therefore, housing generally. Yes. Um, it doesn't matter whether you're, you're low cost, whether you're sort of a private developer or you're effectively doing it for shared ownership. I think that all sectors will do very, very well. And commercial sort of, well, I suppose it depends what you're doing, but more cyclical, you'd say? Yeah, we do? very yeah. much so. Yeah, yeah. But potentially some bigger gains. Yes. Yeah. So we touched there on gearing as well. I know that's something which um, you've mentioned to me before. That's critical and over gearing is, can be very dangerous. So what sort of levels do you think are right? What, what should people be doing in terms of their gearing outlook? Making sure you have no risk of breaching your covenants is the, the critical thing. So, so, and, and how much protection do you give yourself on that? On our side of the fence, we're lucky at the moment, and you'd have to say 35% is where we sit. We don't go to the 55%. 35% loan to value. Yeah. 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 And 55 should be absolutely fine. Yeah. On commercial yes. assets. Yes. Yeah. You then sort of head up and say, well, you know, could we get do 60? That's fine. Yeah. But then in anything around that level, you know, you can be in a tipping point if things run against you. Yeah. So, so I mean, typically bank covenants that I... I've seen on, on commercial loans, because, I mean, some of them, well, actually, most of them are pretty much at 60 maximum, depending on the, yep. the cash that it throws off. Most of the covenants that I've seen is if, if it sort of drops below maybe 65%, something like that, loan to value, mm -hmm. sorry, drops, goes above yeah, it, yeah. or maybe the cash flow goes, the rent stress goes maybe um, sort of south of 125, 130%. Mm -hmm you're going to be in breach of your covenant. So I, I presume if you're looking at a sort of loan to value of 35%. You'd probably say to me, well, you're not making your money work hard enough, are you? <laughs> well, <laughs> and there is something in that too. A lot, lot of it? our assets are residential, so yeah. it's um, a slightly different beast. And um, clearly I'm, I'm quite focused on the covenants which mm -hmm. the banks hold us to on those types of loans. Although in the last recession, we had a load of small buy-to-let mortgages and they don't have covenants in that sense. No. The covenants are, you know, you, you didn't commit mortgage fraud when you took the thing out and you, no. you told the truth and you've got the right tenant in it and you, you're not subletting it and all the rest of if it. If you manage your property well, you manage it properly. and that, that's yeah. kept tidily, yeah. so the condition and everything else is fine, and you're not really trying to rip your tenant off. No. Then you manage your tenants well. Exactly. On the whole, that property is always going to have a tenant. Yeah, and that's the point. So it, it's quite different, but I know long-term that, that Rob and I quite like the sort of 50% loan mm. to value on the residential. And, you know, we've got some commercial assets in there, so it's, it's sort of blended. The other point, I mean, I've seen so many people just borrow from one lender rather than having mm. perhaps two or three. Because, of course, as you mentioned earlier on, that the, the lenders are all, they're all nice to you and want to, want to give you money when the sun's shining, when you don't yes. need it. But I guess you guys have found over the years that even if you breach your covenants... A lender that's in good shape, as long as you're sort of managing your tenants properly, they're, they're probably not going to be too bothered. Well, that's right. And, you know, hopefully your portfolio is resilient enough and in the right product that, if necessary, you can sell one and that will then put you straight immediately. Yeah. Uh, so that I think that, you know, you, you're, you're then sort of safe and protected. I think that where, where we are, you can never tell what's reasonable at a time in the market. 20 years ago, uh, we took out a really long line of dementia debt, mainly sort of through NatWest at the time, but then that went out in the market and was placed across a wide range of investment bankers and holders. Um, and that was 8.5%. We've only just... Interest rate. Yep. Yeah. And that was good at that time, mm. you know, because there were 11, 12s around. And it, mm. was, it was a good way to sort of get money in that we, we could actually make a profit on because we were making 12s and 13% ourselves yeah. Yeah. Um, or more. Now we've just sorted that out last year, and you know now our long-term debt is in at sort of five and a quarter percent, mm. um, all in, and that's you know a good place to be with our portfolio yielding us eight percent. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, we're on the right side of things. Mm. Yeah, I um, I, that's a, a constant thing that I'm always focusing on. You know, what debt have we got? How much? And 
and what's it costing? Uh, it's it's, it's got to be a huge part of the business. Um, so, David, you've, you've given us a, a hell of a lot in terms of your sort of property development, investment, architectural experience. But you do a, a lot of other stuff as well. Um, you're the Queen's representative uh, in Northamptonshire. In Northamptonshire. Yeah. Um, so what, what do you do for Her Majesty um, in Northamptonshire? How, how do, okay, how, what, what I am effectively, well, you've, you've got round figures 47 counties. There are 47 HM reps on that basis. Um, and what we do on behalf of the Queen is to try and be the eyes, ears, heart, and temperature control point of what's going on in a, a county. You know, what's good, what's bad, what needs fixing, what needs encouraging, that sort of thing. Because we're non-political, there is effectively nothing we can do about it. Mm. But if uh, we find that there is something which is, let's say you take education or homelessness or something like that, which is not doing at all well, or a school's not got some good results, what we can go in is we can actually re-motivate and energise people because we can give them a pat on the back and if we were allowed to in this PC world, we could put an arm around their shoulders um, and say, come on, you as, you as teachers or, you know, as a school are, are not as bad as these Ofsted results would indicate. Um, and that, so it makes them feel better and actually it does achieve something. Same time, it's very important to recognise excellence and it doesn't matter, again, whether that's in education or in business or in charities, um, to, to be able to go around and it's a pat on the back for those people and saying, well done. So, yes, we look after any member of the royal family who happens to come up and do a visit. We'd look after anything that's to do with the military. So I'm effectively a major general in equivalent rank. And so we've only got one battalion as such in Northamptonshire, and that's that's the Remy unit in Northampton itself. We've got an enormous number of cadets. And yeah, they're helping young people stand tall. And so when they go out for interviews, they can look people in the eyes, shake their hands well, communicate well. Um, so that's a useful thing. You, you know, your Scouts and Brown is the St. John, the Red Cross, mm. all the, that type of sector charity work is, is very important. Ordinary charity is fine. I've touched on the sort of the homelessness, making sure that people are aware and you can encourage people to help and when you say get them off the streets, that sounds a terrible description in a, in a way, but to give people an opportunity to have accommodation is a better way of doing it. There are some that find it difficult to, to go into accommodation, so you don't overcook it. So there's there's a lot of areas you're covering. And is that sort of, because we, we've got a big homelessness problem here in Peterborough, mm -hmm. the, the council, I think they need something like 250, 300 properties, something like that, and they're actually converting yes. buildings at the moment to put the homeless into. Yeah, you've got this bizarre situation that they're pushing people onto the, <laughs> off the housing to yeah. get the, the accommodation redone so the homeless yeah. can go into it. And what yeah. the people that have gone out of them are doing, I'm not quite sure. But well, they, they evicted 75 they families. They did, yes. Um, and obviously when I went to see them a few weeks ago, that they weren't was happy rather, this, a, rather a sore subject. Mm -mm. And I look, I'm, I, I, they probably just didn't join the dots up. I'm sure they didn't intend for that situation to come about. But it's pretty clear that there have been some you know, pretty heavy landlord tax changes so that the private rented sector, it may- It's been hit, hasn't it, it? It's been hit. It may not be shrinking, but it's definitely not growing like it was. No. And also local housing allowances reduced significantly, housing benefit. As a result, there are more homeless. That's sort of the councillor saying that. So, they're coming out of sort of bed and breakfast and, and travel lodges and things like that. I mean, you've got... Yeah, yeah that, that's the, the expense are. of doing that, yeah, you know. Yeah. And, and also, you know, yeah. is it right to have sort of seven, eight people in one room in a travel lodge? Well, this is... Yeah. I mean, so you guys sort of get involved with... What, what do you do? You put pressure on the council, do you? Or developers or, or RSLs? Or? You can do all of that. Yeah. Um, so a combination of that, the sort of the boroughs, the districts, the MPs. Yeah. Um, and... It, it's show and shame rather than anything else. So oh, by see. being and getting yeah, there and sort of being involved it. in it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, so we can't say you must do this yeah. because at the moment you, you yeah. do it, obviously, then it yeah. becomes a political argument. Oh, I see. But, yeah. but the, what I can do is sort you draw of draw attention. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, was, I was chair of what's called the Northamptonshire Community Foundation for nine yeah. years. And we made sure that through that vehicle, yeah. we could both help and expose the need. And, you know, yeah. that currently is still sort of pushing the need in the county and whole range of sectors. 
and making it, you know, that, that come to the top of the pile in people's notice. And uh, so that works well. Yeah, and these sort of the current issues, do we need new hospitals? Do we need sort of better care for all sorts of things? Yeah, we can try and help promote that. And big initiative is just raising the profile and awareness of Northamptonshire as a whole. It really, you know, we're lucky that we're in a bit of heaven in a way. Mm. Um, and the world and the country doesn't know that much about us, but the industry's pretty good, the accommodation's pretty good, the schools are good, the accessibility's very good, but on the whole, people just drive or train yeah. through us. Yeah. And so we've got a, you know, started new websites and awareness, as I say, campaigns um, to show what we have got. And each year we sort of major on a, a different thing and add that into the pile, as it were. So we started started with all the stately homes and country houses where you know we've got an enormous number of very important ones and then the art and the culture currently we're doing the churches not because it's a religious thing but because they're lovely buildings yeah and then linking those into all the gardens but if uh, you then go to any of these places where do you get your food and drink that leads you into then the good products that we've got around the county as well and then all of this is essentially because if you make it a good place to be and people want to see it and visit then hopefully they want to stay there then they yeah. want to live there then yeah. they want to work there yeah. and then you've got to have your schools and all the other things so you know we we tr- make it a place that yeah. people recognize and then actually you suddenly raise the profile and okay it might sort of raise the prices in some bits but you know we've got a good range of pricing across the county you can have expensive you can have cheap it's all right that's interesting so um I, you know it wasn't a concept i ever understood really the you know, the, the fact that you're a, a Lord Lieutenant and the Queen has these representatives all, all around mm-hmm. the country. I think it's something great to be sort of non-political, isn't it? And I suppose you can go and do work that, that, that others would be maybe attacked for. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you, yeah. know, you, you, you know, what are you doing here? You're interfering yeah. and all of that side of it. But it, in a way, there are very few jobs that can give you the, the pleasure in, in what you do, the people you meet. And there's no downside because mm-hmm. no one actually can criticise yeah. you unless you're way over the top in something, well, yeah. which I probably am because I <laughs> get pretty pretty keen and enthusiastic about yeah, yeah, everything. Yeah, yeah. You know, but, um, you know, I sort of mentioned to you that it's 12 years ago now I had a car crash. Yeah. And having sort of effectively woken up in sort of Stoke Mandeville, you realise actually time's pretty fragile and that it's not there to be wasted. So you've got to get on and, and do things while you've still got a chance to do it. And... Uh, it's a bit like being a born again what's it and but yeah. <laughs> you, you you have got a different outlook on life and what you can do with it and i'm just happened to be very lucky that the commercial pressures eased off at about the same time so working with country metropolitan that changed you know, came out of that with a takeover um just a year before we came up to northamptonshire we'd finished doing very major construction project making our own home and converting it and I like doing that, you know, and in a way that's a sort of giving something back because, you know, it was 18 months worth of life going into that in just outside Corby. And here we are so with a job that no one would have ever expected me to get. I certainly didn't. My wife certainly sort of said, ridiculous. And, you know, we, we've got this great opportunity. That brings us on to some of your other charitable interests. You, you're involved in, in quite a few other charities. Do you want to just talk us through some of the, the foundations and trusts that you're... Yeah, well, I think that yeah. so the, through the, the family, if it, the, yeah. the, the ethos that we had that was handed down to my father through grandfather was that he lived relatively frugally. Well, he yeah. lived very frugally. And he said, well, of the money that comes into to me and my business, I need so much to live on, basic. I'm going to save X percent and I'm going to put the remaining amount which was 20 percent into effectively charitable situations and he built up what is now an enormous base of charities and so across the family we're in a position that we're giving in excess of five million a year out and there are various strands we don't need to get into all of that but it it, it is you know an amazing base to have and i happen to chair the major one of those which is goes under the name kirby Lane foundation and then I've got a small foundation of my own as well. So Kirby Lang, that can go into wide giving, mostly across the country, but we do do, we've majored for some reason that came about 
because one of the trustees was involved in Nepal, and we do a lot of work there. We were doing it before the earthquakes and post the earthquakes. We do a lot in Bangladesh because we just think that's a, an area that a lot of other people don't touch for whatever reason, and a lot at home. And then my own foundation, I try and keep pretty geographically based into Northamptonshire itself, so we're able to, to put a lot into that. But over the years, I've done an awful lot with youth, I've done a lot with sport, a lot with the sort of the community, I've mentioned the Community Foundation, you know, sort of being chairman of St John in Hertfordshire, Bedfordshire and Northamptonshire. And it gives you a sort of a feel for a lot of things that are going on around the place. And as I say, that I couldn't do that if I had commercial pressures and family pressures racking up against me all the time as well. So I've got good support. I notice you've been uh, involved with the Thorpe Pool Hospice. Yes, so that's um, local here, of course. Yes. Yeah. That's well, Sue Ryder came in it with is, that. So, yeah, so you, we, um, we organised a big charity raising event where we did a, a world record mm-hmm. um, on stage. I mean, my business partner, I think he spoke for four days straight. Um, and we, <laughs> is he we, good at talking? How long, well, actually, how long have we got today, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, uh, I was on stage. I, I, we all got a, a world record. Guinness came and, mm-hmm. and sort of um, authenticated it all. And we raised 120000 for Thought Pool um, on that day. And then the year before, we, we, we did another one. So, um, yeah, that's, that's something that's quite close to our hearts. It's doing a really good job. You go into it. I'm not quite sure of a couple of the colour schemes that (laughs) when you go in there, there's one very green sort of area. And I think it does that really make people relax and feel good. But uh, they've convinced themselves that it does. It's it's a great little project, actually, in a a lovely spot. Yeah. Did you get involved in any of the the extension or the construction works? I remember it. It was nice to be able to just sit on the sort of the critique side of yeah. the design side yeah. and say, well, if you I do this you or you do it. that yeah. without having to actually pick up the pen and do it yourself. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's always nicer that way, isn't it? Yeah, you know, so you've got sort of individual projects like that. St Andrews, which is the, the country's most significant mental hospital in the middle of Northampton. Yeah. Um, and being involved there, you know, you, you know you're making a terrific difference. That is a big institutional I call it a heat, but it's lovely, uh, really well done. And now we're sort of at a stage of changing that and trying to put more community-based units up so people do. people come from Wales and Scotland to go there because there isn't anywhere on their patch. Now yeah. what, what we need to do is probably try and find some more satellite units that, mm. that feel smaller yeah. and less institutional as well. Yeah. The patients you've got to be careful with. They, they need pretty secure handling quite a lot of the time but the families should still feel they've got access to them and be connected. They do a, a, a brilliant job. Mm-hmm. Um, both my father and, and um, my wife's father both ended up there. Um, yeah. yeah, and um, they're brilliant people. And um, The level yeah. of care and, yeah. you know, you can get there. And it's, yeah. it is genuine. You know, you, you feel they genuine. are really sort of looking after you, I think, yeah. rather than just doing it. Yeah. So... You also touched earlier on about you sort of car racing in your your accident. Um, mm. You've been involved in a, a lot of different. You were at Le Mans, Mille Mille. You've been all over. I've got a picture here of you at Silverstone with a car on top of you. I mean, this is obviously your passion. It's what you see or do when you're young that drives what you actually perhaps want to do or mm. be when you get older. Yeah, and two parts of childhood that were relevant in in the car scenario were that as a construction company, we had a very big plant depot, which was at Elstree in North London. And that meant I could go down there and be uh, involved in things mechanical. Father's view was that you couldn't have a car unless you'd actually bought one, taken it to part and put it back together again. (laughs) So the first one was a little Austin 7, which we duly had to take it to pieces and put it together again and prove that you could and the thing would run. He liked his Jaguars and they, they weren't fast Jags, they would just have to be saloons. And so you got used to getting somewhere quite quickly. Sort of XJs. But that's, that's always, it was relative. It would take you two yeah. days to get to Cornwall yeah, in those days. Yeah, well, changing the oil, checking the oil, tyres. Absolutely, yeah, you did that yeah, all the time. Yeah, you know, I've got yeah. a new Jag now. And um, 
I actually had to ring up Marshalls in Peterborough yeah. last week. And I said, when's the next service due? <laughs> and they said, well, you, you know, you had one 18 months ago yeah. um, and you don't need one for another three months. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and, yeah. and you hardly even look at the tyres anymore. So, you know, that side of it's changed. But we, we had a driver that looked after father and he used to take me to Silverstone to see someone called Jeff Duke, who was a very famous motorcycle racer. And you sort of got the noise, the smell of the oil and things like that. So you just got the excitement. And when I was reasonably getting a bit, bit older, 18, 19, I'd always wanted a particular Aston Martin. I knew I couldn't get one. But we'd, we had one slightly less than that that we could take out on um, navigation rallies and the family enjoyed that. What, what was that? What was so that, that was a 1935 one and a half litre Aston. Okay. So that was that was very nice. Yeah. That went, and the next one after that, well, I had we had a, a 1930s Bentley shooting brake that we used to Did you? take down yeah, to Cornwall. Yeah. yeah. Um, the biggest drama on that was going across the ferry in Foy, and coming off the ferry onto the far side. It was a very steep bank, and uh, the clutch wouldn't quite make the bank, so the car was going backwards to the water. It was everybody out and push. And so that you know, there, there are the things you remember, are not always the usual ones. Yeah. We had a very nice Aston racing car, which was a DB3, uh, which they only made eleven of, and that was a very serious car, which yeah. uh, Mary, Mary used to take the children to school in. Um, <laughs> got quite a As bit of would. cred there, yeah, yeah, and yeah. So, uh, but you, yeah. couldn't, you couldn't really get much weight rose in it. <laughs> um, and then we, we've had two or three other Astons, and we had a lovely, there's this, a chap called Wire, who was their sort of development engineer who prepared all their cars for Le Mans. And we had, again, it was a 1936 car, but it did pre-war and post-war Le Mans with a Dutch driver, and I was lucky to buy that. That's a sort of typical thing on timing. The chap wanted X for it uh, with the dealer in Oni, and I said, no, we can't afford that, but if it ever comes to Y, which was about 40% less, I'll buy it. And it took 18 months, but they did. They it came for Y. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. that's timing and patience, yeah. isn't it? Very important. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, we did a lot. We did two Le Mans with that, and uh, both classics and legends and a lot, lot of other racing. That was probably one of the nicest of the cars. Yeah, and then, then of course, we, I had the sort of crash at Silverstone, 2006, and um, we decided that was the time to sort of hang up the, the racing helmets. Yeah, yeah. In the meantime, actually, what did we do in 2000? We'd had a, a DB2, 1954 car, yeah. uh, which I bought to convert, ready to do the Round the World car rally. Right, in, yeah, yeah. Um, which was in May 2000. Yeah. Um, and Mary came as co-driver for that with me. She didn't, didn't fancy the gravel very much, so she ended up as the navigator. <laughs> but uh, we did. It was 24,000 miles, which was we it? did in 69 days. Really? Yeah. Um, full all on. around the world? All, all around the world. It, it, well, I so it's not it going to every country, of, but it yeah. was as direct a circumference as yeah. you could do. So it was effectively going through all the Russian states, yeah. the, the, you know, the stands, yeah. and then all the way across uh, the Taklamakan and uh, Gobi Deserts in yeah. China. Yeah. Then we were taken on an enormous Antonov tank transport uh, right. across to Anchorage, yeah. and then came down all the logging tracks yeah. through Canada, Canada yeah. and then um, across Missouri, Dakota, and yeah. across to New York. Yeah. And then the plane picked us up and dropped us off in Marrakesh. So we could do the Sahara and through the so top bit of Africa. Down into Africa. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. yeah. And then up then up through Spain and France and home. Interesting. Very interesting. That was testing of a relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Because if you think, you know, you, you you are very close together. Yeah. And you're you know, you're driving for eleven hours a day effectively. <laughs> um, Gemma and I, yeah, weekend. <laughs> could you would you stand the relationship? <laughs> Gemma and I had a weekend in the helicopter last weekend to Cheltenham and yeah. I think after an hour of um, navigating around uh, mist and, and, and bits and bobs um, it sort of felt a little bit more like a just a bank holiday uh, drive out and a, a couple. Of, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I know exactly what you're talking about, but mm. not, not over eleven hours a day, uh, which is um, yeah significant. You felt so, early in the mornings, yeah. and the critical times were around about what between one and two yeah. in the day, because you seemed to have a almost wanting to go to roost yeah. time then, yeah. and you had to sort of make sure you stayed alert at that yeah. time, and. 
part of being alert is that you don't snap the navigator's head off. <laughs> <laughs> and the same when it gets past sort of seven o'clock at night, it, yeah. you, you know, you've got to just be careful of your relationships there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Management of relationships. Mm. So this car that you're driving at Silverstone, what is it? It's called an HRG. Okay. Um, it was designed and built just before AC's came in. So it's yeah. um, a chap called Tajiro was the body designer yeah. for this particular one. Yeah. And they made three lightweight Le Mans racers. Yeah. And then the, the previous uh, or the original owner in this sort of late or mid fifties had put yeah. uh, a slippery body on it. Yeah. Um, and it had been it, a very, very good provenance indeed. Yeah. I'd raced it quite successfully and it had always either been class winner or second, yeah. something like that. Yeah. Uh, it would beat a lot of much more serious cars. And wh where else did you take it? So again, around the Le Mans and Ghent and yeah. you know, the sort of the Goodwoods and the, uh, you know, the Spouse and the, the, all of the nice sort of places you yeah. want, want to go, yeah. it would get you into. This particular race at Silverstone, which was the international historic race there in September, the difficulty was that here you are sitting on you know, less than a, one and a half litres, and you're, you're competing with C and D type Jaguars yeah. and Ferraris yeah. and everything else. So you know you're not going to beat the field on yeah. that lot. There were definitely five people I knew I could beat <laughs> <laughs> at Say No More. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and I, I had a great start. I was well in front of them, but that's about as far as it went. <laughs> yeah. And but, uh, you did Mele Mele? Yeah, first did that with... An early Aston, another pre-war 1936 one, yeah. which was a prototype. Yeah. And then in order to make sure I got an entry for the, a couple, um, I bought a car called an OM, which was made in Brescia. And that got me to number two or three in the queue. And we found this car down in Hampshire. It got a very, very good history. Again, it had done the sort of TTs and oh, okay. uh, yeah, yeah, things like yeah. that. Uh, Chapel Oates had, had driven it. And the Italians loved it. Yeah, and, did they? Yeah. yeah. But that, that ended up in a museum over in Italy instead. Did it? So that, uh, And we were talking earlier on, you know, about sort of retaining any of this stuff. You, you sold most of it, did you? you well, it's know? like I, I, yeah. I, if we took the sort of the one that would be the most valuable, yeah. which would have been the DB3 racer, yeah. worth about two and a half million now. We bought yeah. it for... I think eight thousand, mm. quite a long time ago, and we we enjoyed it for a couple of years, and then some school fees came in, yeah. so that got <laughs> sold yeah, to, yeah. to help the tax man and everything yeah. else. Yeah. And but then yeah, we bought something else with the change and yeah. came out of it. So we've always had a toe in the water rather than mm. building up a great collection of the cars, yeah. which is a shame. I'd love them all now. Mm. They would uh, be worth as much as most of the property portfolios. Yeah. But, uh, I think cars are lovely. They're sculpture, they're engineering, mm. and you know they're cutting edge, and mm. particularly if you're in the racing car yeah. side of it. And so you've got something which is really at the top of its tree. Where will we be able to go and play with these things in 20 years' time? You know, is there a point where cars will all become museum pieces? Well, if they're going to ban petrol and diesel mm -mm. in 2030, yes. as they say they're going to do, on new cars. I presume with time there will be less petrol stations and there will be just yep. electric charging points or whatever. I don't know what's going to happen with the, the sort of movement on pollution and what it does mm -hmm. to people and the environment and all the rest of it. I suppose a huge thing. I mean, what do you think about this? I mean, we've got all these automated cars coming. In the end, I know at the moment maybe it hasn't been proven as such, but mm -hmm. it's pretty clear that within a few years, they are going to be a lot, lot safer than driving yourself. So yes. are they even going to issue driving licenses in a few years, I wonder? Um, within our grandchildren's lifetimes, let's sort of put it in that scale. No, they won't. Will they? You, you, you will not own a car. You might rent a ticket to one, which will mean you just ring up and it'll what this thing will arrive, arrive to take you somewhere. That's exactly what's been going through my mind because... Mm -mm how are they going to continue accepting five deaths a day on UK roads when mm -hmm. there's this alternative? That, that, that it will only be one death. One, or one death a month or something. Mm -hmm. It's probably unsustainable, isn't it? Which is in yeah. some way, well, not from that point of view, obviously, you know, we, we don't want people to die on the roads, but it, it is a shame. Yeah, um, we love our toys, yeah, but, yeah. you know, it'll, maybe the toys will be different then. Yeah, and yeah. So you know, the lovely Ferrari, the lovely Aston or whatever that we've got or we hanker after... Will they be relevant or, or will they just be sitting somewhere 
not gathering dust because they'll be loved, the sculpture will be more yeah, relevant, yeah. or will we have to take them down to South America somewhere or some place yes. and where we go and I'd play with them down that. there? Well, it'll always work in Cuba, won't it? Yeah, <laughs> someone, yeah. Will want, someone will want them. Yeah, of course. Well, mm-hmm. Asia. Yes. Um, yes, Africa. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're even. Fit. I mean, they're, they're they're not going to be interested in in legislating these things off the roads, are they? So if there's money in it, they'll they'll arrange the holidays. Brilliant, David. You've given me uh, given you hope for the future. You've given me hope for the future, and uh, yeah. and and at least in my lifetime, I'm always going to be able to drive drive fast cars somewhere. Yeah, yeah, that would be good. Yeah, and I'm sure we'll always be able to do it on the track anyway. David, it's it's been really interesting talking to you. Thank you. Um, I'm I'm sure we're going to get lots of questions and input from our listeners. If people want to find more about you or sort of what you do, do you have uh, somewhere that they can go and look or, or, I don't know, a way in which they can contact you? We've been so busy being Lord Lieutenant for the last sort of four years that the website will only actually come to be current in about three months' time. So it'll in time to hand on to the next person because you have to retire when you're 75, so I've got 21 months left to run. They can learn all about Northamptonshire by going on to Britain's best, Northamptonshire, Britain's best surprise. And they can see a little bit about what we've been trying to put together, raising profile. And if they Google me, then most of the bits will come up somewhere. If there's any feedback that comes through to you that you want to bounce back to me, any follow up, then yeah. obviously very, very happy to do that. And uh, be pleased to meet people as and when necessary. Great. Well, thank you, David. I'll get that and I'll pass it through. So, David, thank you again. It's been great to get to know you better. That has been Mark Homer for Mark My Words. 